Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. I am so excited to be sitting down with my guest today, Mickey Rowe. I want to just jump right into the podcast as soon as possible. It's a nice long one. If you do not know who Mickey Rowe is, well, you are about to, and you are just going to be delighted. Mickey Rowe has had a prolific and varied career as an actor, director, consultant, and public speaker. He is now highly sought after, both nationally and internationally. Mickey was the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone, the lead role in the Tony Award-winning play, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. He has also appeared as the title role in the Tony Award-winning play Amadeus and more. Mickey has also been featured on the Today Show, PBS, Vogue, Playbill, NPR, CNN, The New York Times, New York Times Magazine. I first learned about Mickey Rowe seeing his book on the shelf. Mickey has a best-selling book, Fearlessly Different. As an autistic and legally blind person, Mickey Rowe believes that when we design for accessibility, we help everyone to perform at their best, not just disabled folks. I don't normally talk about acting very much. (laughs) I I have a very small group of friends who are actors, but I was just so thrilled. I had recently just been my my love and my my passion was just like re-sparked. It was reignited recently. And I couldn't think of a better person to sit down and talk about theater and the craft and and the inciting incidents of what makes us want to be creatives in the world and the magic that storytelling can bring. So again, you guys can find Mickey's book, Fearlessly Different, uh, anywhere, any bookstore. You can also listen to it, download it, however you however you take in your books. We will also be releasing this interview, the entire video of this interview on YouTube at A Super Bloom Podcast, our YouTube page. So go ahead, head over there, like, subscribe, watch the interview if that's how you like to take in your podcast these days. We're releasing all of our episodes. Also, we would love for you to rate and review this podcast at Apple Podcasts. I love to read your reviews. Thank you so much. And without further ado, here is my interview with Mickey Rowe. The timing of being able to sit with you and speak about acting and being on stage and just like love the love of the craft of of the creative craft of acting couldn't be better because all this to say of self tapes 
and the chaos of like what we're all up against as performers these days and how uniquely different it is to how it used to be, mm. I have grown so exhausted by it. Like it's been really hard for me to find a spark or a sense of joy in the creative process because it feels like it's like the it's all been taken away because it's all through screens these days. But I just finally got to have like this wonderful, I had a magical audition that I haven't had anything like that in so long. And it just like reignited that like fun thing that I love about performing and connecting with people. And so this couldn't be a better timing to be able to speak with you about acting, which is usually not something I enjoy speaking about. Uh So I am so excited to be speaking with you today specifically. Well, that's so sweet. And I completely agree. Yeah, I have honestly started transitioning out of acting and theater just because so often it feels like so much. It feels so unkind to the people who are working in the industry. And it just doesn't it hasn't felt fun anymore. And it doesn't feel even creative so often anymore. And so I agree. I agree. My wife and I, my wife also uh, was an actor when we met and we so often hate talking about theater and hate talking about acting. So it's really nice when there are those moments when we're like, oh yeah, this can be fun again. This can really feel good again and be something that's enjoyable. Well, I want to go back to when you were a kid And when you got that first spark and you describe it in interviews um, and in your writing about uh, your grandmother who took Mm -hmm. you to the Seattle theater. Can you, you grew up in Seattle. Can you share a little bit with our listeners? Can you tell that story of the first time you watched people on stage and just felt captivated? You know, growing up being an autistic person, I really didn't get that many social interactions growing up. Um, it was really, really hard for me. I didn't have really any friends through high school. I was in a special education room for most of the day in speech therapy and occupational therapy. And it wasn't that I didn't want that human connection. I desperately, desperately wanted human connection and friendship and relationships. But I just didn't know how to make that happen. I didn't know how to make that into a reality. But my grandma had a subscription to Seattle Children's Theater which was a professional theater for young audiences in Seattle. And when I got to go see a show at Seattle Children's Theater, that was the one time all of a sudden I felt understood and I felt seen and heard and accepted. Even though I was just sitting in that dark theater, it was the one time I felt safe and got to experience all of these rich, nuanced social interactions in a way that felt safe to me and wasn't demanding anything of me that I wasn't able to give. Um, You know, as an autistic person, when people would talk to me, even if they didn't know I was autistic, at that point in time, I wasn't as good at acting as I am now. I couldn't hide my autism as well. And so people would always raise their voice up really, really high when they talked to me compared to when they talked to my peers that were my same age. And they'd talk to me like I was a toddler or a little baby or something. But when I got to go to Seattle Children's Theater and there would be an actor and maybe they'd turn and direct address to the audience. And if they looked at me and were talking to me, that actor wouldn't change their voice when they were talking to me. They talked to me in just the same way they talked to every other person in that audience. And so that just felt so magical and incredible to me. It's interesting to hear you talk about too, how almost describing it is you got to observe a lot of the emotional connection that you were looking to have. And Mm -hmm. that I think is a really interesting thing about theater. And it's funny because I was trying to explain theater to my daughter. My daughter's seven. And last fall, uh, we watched Hamilton on Disney Plus, which Mm -hmm. is the theater production of Hamilton on Disney Plus. And she was so confused. She's like, wait, but they're singing, but they're on stage. But where's the other movie part? And I was trying to explain like what a Broadway show to her was. Yeah. And I just couldn't. And and so I then I planned a, a trip for her and I took her to New York and we saw the music man. And uh-huh. like watching her watch this incredible performance on stage and just experience it for the first, like there really is nothing like seeing live theater, live music, like people right there. And it's such a beautiful like sentiment to, to that you got to see 
like observe this beautiful interpersonal connection and understand it in a different way. And it makes sense to me that it wasn't like on a screen, on a TV Mm -hmm. screen or where it's directed at you and you have to participate and eager to like participate in the in what society has deemed the correct way. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, it's just a beautiful image I have in my mind of you. Uh, It's just this young boy watching like, just observing a human connection in that way. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, that was so magical about it being live theater at first for me was that, you know, often people with disabilities can so often be made to feel that there is something wrong with them or there's something wrong with me that needs to be fixed. Or, you know, we see kind of these perfect people and this is what people are supposed to look like. This is how people are supposed to talk and communicate and move. Um, but the nice thing about live, I was just talking with a friend the other day, yesterday about this, the nice thing about live events and getting people together for in-person live events is that there's no editing things out. You know, if things go wrong during the show, they're almost embraced as gifts. You know, Mm -hmm. you can, if something happens while I'm doing a live show, I can either choose to ignore it and pretend like I didn't notice this, whatever huge thing went wrong, which is so silly to do because the audience noticed it, you know, (laughs) then all of a sudden I'm not living in the same reality as the audience. Yeah. Or I can just kind of, you know, while, while keeping within whatever world I'm in, you know, acknowledge it and play off it and realize that this is the reality of the moment I'm in. And the audience almost loves that even more in a live event because they feel like they're getting to see something no one else has ever gotten to see before or will ever get to see again. And it's almost like we all, inter- we everyone in this room was getting to experience this one moment together that was really unique to just us, these people in this room today. Like when people watch SNL and someone breaks and laughs. And yeah. Like everyone loves those moments. Loves it so much. The best part of SNL so often because we almost feel like we're getting a little glimpse behind the curtain. Yeah. We almost feel like we're getting to see behind the scenes a little bit. And so that was really special and powerful to me and special for me to get to see that mistakes are okay. Mistakes are part of life. Imperfection is a part of life. And it's just about how we learn to dance with that. And make friends with it too. And make friends with it. Absolutely. And speaking of <laughs> speaking of imperfections. <laughs> so for anyone who is has maybe a preconceived notion of what autism is, how autism presents, could you maybe share with our listeners a little bit specifically what people might generally ask you about autism and a little bit about how your specific autism presents? For those listeners who... Um, aren't as familiar with autism or don't have an autistic person in your life. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I hear about autism a lot, especially when I was trying to advocate for autistic people to be auditioned for the role of Christopher in Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, is I think so often people think that autistic people don't have emotions or can't, can't feel emotions or almost sort of like robots in a way. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Autistic people feel all the same emotions everyone else has and have all the same desires and wants and needs in life that everyone else has. We just might not necessarily be able to identify those emotions in, our, in other people as accurately. If someone's mad at me, I might not pick up on the fact that they're mad at me. I mean, I might not realize that they're mad at me or they could be perfectly happy with me and nothing's going on, but I could... I could think that they are super, super angry at me and super mad at me, even when they're not. So I just am not able to necessarily pick up on social cues or things like that as easily. So this interaction with you right now, Candice, is so easy, right? Because the roles are incredibly clear and logical and laid out. You're interviewing me and uh, you ask the questions and I answer them. And I'm supposed to sound smart and maybe funny. I'm going to give myself that one. I'm supposed to sound smart and funny, right? And the roles are really, really clear. But if we passed each other on the street as peers, all of a sudden there aren't those roles, right? So that interaction wouldn't be as easy for an autistic person, right? We're not doctor and patient or barista and customer or interviewer and interviewee. We're just peers. There's no handbook that says, 
how we're supposed to interact with each other or for, for how long we're supposed to interact or what I'm supposed to say. So that makes that kind of situation really hard for an autistic person. Another way I think to describe autism in me um, or a misconception people might have, I was non-speaking when I was younger. And often I think people have a misconception about autism, that non-speaking autistic people don't speak because we're not smart enough to speak. Or they often think that maybe autism is an intellectual disability or that people who aren't speaking we, we just aren't smart enough to be able to speak or move in the same ways that other people can. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and so when I was younger, for instance, even though I couldn't speak, I still understood everyone, everything that everyone else around me was saying. I still understood when people were talking about me as if I wasn't in the room and maybe they thought that I didn't know what they were saying or couldn't understand them. I could still understand and everything they were saying. I just couldn't get my thoughts out of my mouth to communicate in words back to them. And that's actually the case for most non-speaking autistic people they're finding now. And so, so often, even for people who, who never uh, start speaking or learn how to speak, people who go into adulthood as non-speaking autistic people, they're realizing nowadays that if you teach them how to use a keyboard or put a, an iPad app, called an AAC device in front of a non-speaking autistic person, that often they end up being able to communicate just as eloquent, beautiful, perceptive thoughts as anyone else can. It's just that they're not able to make those thoughts come out in words verbally, but they can so, so brilliantly express their thoughts in so many other ways. How did you go from nonverbal to then auditioning? Like, how, what, how did, when was the moment that you realized you wanted to act, pursue acting, pursue theater, because um, that is quite uh, the, I'm sure it was not a leap. I'm sure it was many, many steps. I was really lucky to get a lot of speech therapy. I When I started speaking, I guess even though my grandparents could understand me, um, my teachers could not understand what I was saying. And so they would say, you know, it's great that, great that he's speaking, but if we can't understand what he's saying, it doesn't help us in the classroom. So I was in speech therapy, which is so similar to voice classes that we take as actors. You know, it was a lot of maybe tongue twisters or trying to having them show you exactly where to put your tongue in your mouth or how to move your mm -hmm. tongue around in your mouth. And so that helped me a lot. But then I think what really led me more than anything to theater was after I turned 18, I needed to get a job. And that is so challenging for autistic people. You know, it's, I only have the statistic from 2017. Um, so I'm sure that these statistics have changed since the pan, since our whole world has changed yeah, yeah, through exactly. the pandemic. But um, in 2017, it was estimated that up to 85% of aut autistic college graduates were unemployed or underemployed. And that definitely affected me in my life. I have so frequently been unemployed or underemployed. Just, um, just last year, I was working at a grocery store bagging groceries for over six months. But then even if you can get a job, there is currently no federally regulated minimum wage for people with disabilities or developmental disabilities like autism. So even though the federal minimum wage right now for everyone else is $7.25 an hour, if you have a developmental disability like autism, you can legally be paid as little as a few pennies per hour. What? Yes. And we are not talking about what? internships. This isn't internships or anything like that. This is employment. You can legally be paid as little as a few pennies per hour if your employer says, if, if you have a disability. Um, and there are thousands and thousands of people with disabilities and developmental disabilities like autism being paid pennies or a dollar or two every day in the United States. Who are doing the work. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Who are employees of the company doing work. And so this was so hard for me. So because of all of these things, I needed to find a way to scrape by and employ myself. 
So I started stilt walking and street performing as you do, (laughs) juggling and unicycling and mostly twisting balloons out on standing on stilts and going to every farmer's market in my area. I now, Mickey, <laughs> sidebar, because one of my things I tried to pick up during the, the shutdown of uh-huh. 2020 was balloon animal making. Oh my gosh. I, I was like, this, oh, I'm going to be the coolest mom ever. This is what I, this is my calling. And I just tried watching so many videos. I could uh-huh. master the, the like wiener dog, like the hot, like yeah. the, I could master one dog. Like that was my one thing for a little bit, which was Give very the dog hard. A really long neck and call it a giraffe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's really like the root of all balloon and balloon I, animals and objects. But it takes a lot of work. That is like a lot of pressure to like like. And also, I've seen these photos and videos of you, and you are doing these balloon animal making on stilts and like all these different like a very high stilts, mind you. Um, did you just are you just self trained? Did you just like do a deep dive? You know, because again, all through high school, I had no friends, like zero friends, elementary school through high school. So I had a lot of time just in my garage and in my backyard by myself. Um, at one point, I think I saw a stilt walker on Sesame Street or somewhere like that or some some show. And so I went to the garage with my dad and we made a pair of stilts. And so that was always just my thing. When I got home from school, I would go practice circus skills. And, you know, a lot of people with autism, there's something called sensory processing disorder, which means that maybe noises might be really loud for us compared to what other people experience or lights. Um, if I'm in a room with, um, with certain lights that might seem normal to other people, for me, it's like they're strobing and blinking really brightly. And so we just experience our senses differently than non-autistic people experience senses. Do they know why? Uh, You know, I'm sure they know why. I'm sure there's been a lot of research into it. I don't exactly know the why behind it, but I do know that one of the senses that autistic people particularly experience differently is called that their proprioceptive sense, which is where your body begins and ends in space, just kind of knowing where your body is in space at any given time. And so that makes it so a lot of autistic people are sensory seekers will really want to be rocking back and forth or flapping their arms or spinning on a chair or doing things that are going to get them a little bit more proprioceptive input. So that was another reason why I really loved circus skills and jug and unicycling and doing anything, any of these circus skills that would give me even a little bit more proprioceptive input uh, that my body really needed and craved. And they use circus skills a lot as therapy for autistic people too, depending on what schools they go to. Mm -hmm. But so I was street performing, trying to make ends meet from the time I was 18, even until I ended up, you know, becoming at one point a single dad with full custody of my autistic kid out stilt walking, twisting balloons. And I finally realized, you know, as soon as you have kids, you just need to find, you need to find something a little more stable. Yeah, this whole like, "Mm, I got to follow. It's like, you can still be passionate about dreams, but it also is like what equates to food on the table and a roof over our head. Like, let's start there. And that was the whole reason I was street performing because no one else would hire me because it's so difficult for autistic people to get employment that is going to pay them a living wage in most cities. But I realized, you know, the street performing thing isn't, isn't going to be enough, isn't going to do it, especially now that I'm a dad, a single dad with an autistic kid. Uh, so I turned to the only show on Broadway that had an autistic lead character, Christopher Boone and the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. A casting director in Seattle had actually just seen the show on the West End. And I guess coming back from the show, even though I wasn't openly autistic, I hadn't told them that I was autistic. They just intuited it and knew. And they said, Mickey, you need to read this book, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. This is you. So I read the book and was YouTubing the show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How did you know the casting agent? Were you openly trying to get auditions at the time? I was acting at the time at Seattle Children's Theater. Oh where my, my grandma full had circle. first. Yeah, completely full circle. But not getting any speaking roles or anything. I was in the, you know, doing high school musical, the musical on, <laughs> in the ensemble, or doing the Wizard of Oz in the ensemble. Lots of ensemble parts at Seattle Children's Theater, playing thing one in the cat in the hat. Lots of roles where I didn't have any lines, but I just ran and ran around and jumped around. <laughs> um, and I was also doing the same thing at Seattle Opera, which is a big, huge opera house, thousands of seats, which is so, so fun and exciting. But where I was non-speaking roles, had no lines, but they would have me like stilt walking in La Boheme in the big Cafe Moma scene uh, outside waving a giant French flag on the stage. Um, so I had I, I gotten to do a lot of theater and be on stage a lot, but without ever having any lines or having to say a line. And I didn't have an agent. I, I was living in Seattle. I didn't have an agent. But I knew if there was ever going to be a way for me to excel and, and to, to dig my way out somehow of street performing <laughs> and just doing these non-speaking roles every once in a while that this show curious incident was probably my best bet but you you know as well as anyone you know if you don't have an agent yeah. you're not going to be able to like They're go the gatekeepers. on Telson Co's website and find like, yeah. you're not going to be able to go to uh, an, a casting director's website and just find their personal email address so what I did is I wrote a cover letter explaining why I thought it would be really awesome for them to audition me, why I thought that it would be really beneficial for the show to have actually autistic people involved in the show Curious Incident, why I thought it would only add to the show, add to the marketing of the show. I read the book back in 2003 mm -hmm. like or four. And you started to mention you had read the book. For those, I mean, you obviously know the story very, very well. For anyone who does not remember the book or didn't read it back in the day or is on the younger side, what is like the the premises of The Curious Incident of The Dog in the Nighttime? So Curious Incident of The Dog in the Nighttime follows an autistic 15-year-old boy who, just like me, really loves animals because you know, animals accept you even when you can't communicate in the way that's most convenient for the non-autistic people. Um, so he really loves his neighbor's dog, 
And one day he goes out to his neighbor's yard and finds out that their dog has been murdered pretty graphically with a pitchfork going right through the dog. The police come. And because this autistic person is not acting in the normal ways that police might expect someone to be acting, he ends up being the prime suspect for the murder of this dog. And he decides that he is going to, he really, really loves Sherlock Holmes books. That is his passion. So he decides he is going to become an investigator, become a detective and find out who really killed the neighbor's dog. So he goes on this big detective journey on his own to find out who killed the dog. And it leads him to learning a whole lot more than he bargained for about his own life, about his family, about his parents, and takes him on a solo journey from his little tiny town in rural England all the way to London all by himself over the trains and tubes and all sorts of things. And when you read it for the first time, did, were you able to see yourself in Christopher Boone? What, what could you relate to the character and then what was so yeah. specific to Christopher himself? Reading that, first off, I'll say the book is not perfect. The book was written by a non-autistic author or some, or he, an author who says that he is non-autistic, who also says that he did no research into autism at all when writing the book, that he just wrote a fictional character with qualities that resonated with him. So the book is not perfect and should not be taken as a as a lesson or a textbook on autism or anything like that. That said, though, it was definitely the first time in my life that I felt like there were other people like me in the world. You know, the disability community and autism community are so different from so many other minority groups in the way that often we are the only disabled person in our family or the only autistic person in our family. And often the ways that people form, the ways in which people form community in other ways can be really inaccessible to us as a community. So it's re it, especially before in the internet and TikTok and things like this really took off, before the communities formed primarily on the internet, it was really hard for autistic people to form community with each other. And it would be really frequent that, you know, even though the census says, 25% of the population has a disability, it would be really frequent that you might live your whole life not knowing or having relationship with anyone else who has a disability. So reading that book was the first time I realized there were other people like me in the world, other people who thought like me, and that I might even have a community of people. So that was so powerful. And to know that it was going to, that this had been performed on stage at this point. Mm -hmm. And you realize like, I want it, that's mine. And to also, I'm sure, find out that no one on the autism, is it, when people say autism spectrum, is that a correct way to identify it or is there a better way to say it? Yeah, sure, that is just fine. Um, autism spectrum is a totally fine thing to say. Some people will say I'm autistic. Some people will say I'm a person with autism and it is all fine. I would say the best rule of thumb is to just listen to some how someone self-identifies and use their language back to them. Um, but I think it's really all fine and all all personal preference as long as you're um, you're listening to and respecting the ways that people self-identify. But there was no one, nobody autistic had ever played the role of Christopher Boone on stage. Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, an article had just come out. The only the only involvement from anyone who was autistic in either the book or the production was the West End production at one point hired an autistic consultant to assist them with their, with the original national theater production. And an article had just come out in the biggest, in the, the New York Times of London. I forget what the newspaper is called, the big UK newspaper, um, where that, that consultant had wrote, written an article saying that you know, the, their involvement had really just been, they'd been paid to put a stamp of approval on this production, but that they hadn't actually been utilized really or listened to. So I thought it was just really important that if we're going to be educating the public about autism and telling the story through theater, which is such a 
you know, storytelling is how we all learn about so much in our lives, that it was really important we were including actually autistic people. And just as an example of how important storytelling is, you know, because often as actors, right, I think we can sometimes get really jaded about the work we do and think that this is so silly or this is not actually important or why, why do we do this? You know, it can seem really yep. funny when we're, when we're just up there doing the thing over and over and again. And then I watch a movie about something that I'm going through, like, and then I'm bawling my eyes out and right. being like, I exactly. feel less alone in the world. Yes. But with autism too, the thing is, is that the stories we tell in movies and on stage actually even affect who gets diagnosed with autism. Because when you get a diagnosis for autism, you don't, go, you don't get to go directly to an autism specialist. You always start either through your pediatrician or general care practitioner or people like these who kind of gatekeep, who say, oh, yes, I am going to refer you to an autism specialist. And those people, even though, you know, they might have learned about autism for an hour or two or a day in school at some point, what they've experienced for much more than that is they've seen the good doctor on TV. They've seen Rain Man, the movie, and these things affect them just like they affect all of us. And if you think about almost every single character, autistic character in all of these big movies, they're almost always white boys or white men with savant syndrome. And so if you don't look like that, if you don't present that way to your pediatrician or general care practitioner, they might not even refer you to get a diagnosis from a specialist. Um, so it's really, really powerful the way movies and TV mm-hmm. actually affect and then construct our real lives outside of entertainment. But the real issue for me was I couldn't figure out how to get in touch with the production. So I, the only email address that I could find is that I knew the casting director of the production was also the in-house casting director at Lincoln Center Theater, even though that wasn't the theater the production was happening at, but that was, that was kind of his home base, I guess. Um, so I, the only email addresses that I could really find were info at Lincoln Center Theater and box office <laughs> at Lincoln Center Theater. But I wrote a cover letter to this casting director, mm-hmm. care of Lincoln Center Theater, um, and filmed a little video and attached a link of me doing some of my circus skills because the show is really physical as well. And sent it to casting director, care of box office at Lincoln Center Theater, it thinking nothing would happen from it, thinking nothing would come from it. But then sure enough, two months later, I got an email from the casting team asking me to come out to New York and audition, which is such a good reminder to all of us to like always plant those seeds that if there's something we want in our life, it is so easy to just plant every day, find one way to like plant a little seed, plant a future. I mean, super bloom, right? Let's let's plant a seed every day. Let's find one tiny way of investing in our future selves every single day. And even if only one out of a hundred of those seeds actually end up blooming, that's still pretty awesome. And that's still pretty magical. So it is so, so valuable and so important that even when they seem like long shots, just every day, find a way to plant one little, one little seed. And then you might be really surprised at which seeds actually end up blooming. Yeah, that is so true. And it, and also just the whole premise of like, that in order to get where you want to go that you must go through the front door. It's like, no, it, you never know how you're going to get mm-hmm. there sometime. It's it's really just putting yourself in those vulnerable positions saying like, you know what, I'm going to try the window or the back door or maybe there's yeah. a basement door I can get in through. Mm-hmm. And you end up not only getting that audition, but you eventually, was this when you got the role or was it then later on they brought you on? No, this wasn't even when you got the role. So what happened is the Broadway production auditioned me and then soon after announced that they were going to be closing on Broadway. And then they brought me back and flew me out for the national tour. And the national tour, I felt I felt like my odds were pretty good because they were cast, they had narrowed it down to, um, to six final Christophers. And they actually had us all in the room together. The way they did this audition, it was a two-day audition 
um, where the first day was with the casting team, the associate director, and the choreographer. And it was just a day of movement, putting us through our paces with the movement. And then the second day was where all the producers are in the room, just a line of people with very straight faces behind a table. And they brought all six of us back to do a monologue from the show with some movement choreography that we had learned the day before, and then to also do a couple scenes from the show for the producers. So they had six Christophers. And because the production was so strenuous for Christopher, he is on stage the whole time, never gets to leave the stage for a sip of water or anything like that. They were double casting the role because they that's how they had done it on Broadway too. And in the West End, they'd done it the same way. Um, so that the two actors split the eight shows a week. And so if they're casting two people and there's six people in the room, I figured, well, you know what? That's a one in three shot, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm the only autistic person in the room as well. I was well. going to ask, you're the only autistic person I was in actually, the room. The, the producers told me, and I know they were meaning this as a compliment. They meant this as a compliment, I'm sure. But they told me I was the only autistic person who they had seen in person for the role which really hurt my heart a little bit because it meant yeah. to me, it felt like that meant they weren't actually trying that hard to find autistic people to audition. But in the end, they decided that it was too big a risk, that, they, that it was an unnecessary risk to cast an autistic person in the role. But what's that was the an, risk? I don't know. That, but they felt it was an unknown that the production had done really well financially the way they had had it and that there was no need to to put an unknown in there that they hadn't experienced before that they they weren't autism experts they didn't know everything there was to know about autism and so they didn't know whether this would work or not and they just felt that casting an autistic person seemed scary or risky to them so they ended up again for the national tour having no autistic people involved in the production. But then the rights were released to the first regional theater to get the rights to the show. Um, that was actually, it was a bunch of regional theaters doing co-pros, co-productions. So it, you got to go to all these different regional theaters. Mm -hmm. And I got cast there to be the first autistic actor to play Christopher Boone. But what I really loved about it, maybe this is petty of me, maybe this is silly, <laughs> but that... On Broadway, or the new, I'm going to pull up this quote so I can find it and read it directly for you. You know, the big thing with the Broadway production is they were saying that they didn't know whether it was worth the risk of hiring an autistic person and they didn't know whether it would be possible. You know, as they said that it was a big show with big words and that it was a really, really demanding part. But our little regional production actually ended up getting a ton more press than even the national tour got, th than any of the other productions had gotten. And so when the New York Times came to see the show and they reviewed it and wrote about it, they said, Mr. Rowe plays Christopher with an agile grace, an impish humor, and a humanizing restraint. On Broadway, where the show was a Tony Award winning hit, it ran eight times a week with two actors alternating the demanding role of Christopher. Mr. Rowe, thought to be the first openly autistic actor to play the role, does all nine shows a week by himself. And I really loved that so much because it, one, it was nice to see that all these regional theaters, all these, all these smaller, you know, cities all across the country, even when Broadway was saying, Ooh, we don't know if we can do this. We don't know if this is important or valid. Our communities, our communities all across the country were saying, yes, we can. Yes, we can do this. And that then those regional productions that took that risk that Broadway was afraid to take ended up getting so much more press than the Broadway production or the national tour. And that one of the things that the New York Times said was on Broadway, the guy was, they had eight shows a week yeah. and the guys were alternating <laughs> the two eight shows a week. but. Mickey did the exact same show, at least as physically and challenging as they did it. Um, 
doing all nine shows a week by himself, which I really liked. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What came after that? Yeah, so then I was really lucky to get to do, to play the title role in Amadeus, which was such a fun show. So incredible. What I really loved about it was that even though, even though a lot of people argue that Mozart is autistic or was uh, that Mozart was probably autistic. Um, the show wasn't about autism necessarily that I was just getting to play a character that was not necessarily autistic himself. And I, that was so huge for me at the time because after Curious Incident, you know, we were talking about self tapes, how, how all the, mm-hmm. these auditions are self tapes now and all the audition requests I would get I would only get audition requests if the if the character specifically had the word autism in that one or two sentences that describe the character. If autism was not listed in that in the like as one of the first few words in that little character description, I wouldn't get called in for the audition. And a lot of the auditions I was getting they just wanted someone to pretend to be nonverbal and rock back and forth and hit their head and moan like a a caricature almost of or like a very like a societal idea of how autism is decidedly presents for every autistic person yes it genuinely felt as though i should just film one one video of me rocking of sitting on the ground rocking back and forth moaning and hitting my head so that so that i could submit it to all these places it felt really silly filming filming the same video again and again and again for completely different shows that were being cast by completely different casting directors, um, but that the sides kept being so similar and requesting the same thing. So it was really cool to get to do Amadeus because it required more of me than that. You know, I got to learn learn how to conduct from these awesome professional conductors and learn how to learn about piano and learn all these different skills that felt really, really fun to learn about and um, to get to show expertise in on stage. And it was just such a fun character, such a fun character. And it was fun to get to show that autistic people can be sexy and disabled people can be kinky and be all these, all these things that we don't normally, we don't normally feel comfortable 
seeing people with disabilities or autistic people as adults sometimes. And so it was really fun to get to be a little bit crude on stage as Mozart in all of these, <laughs> um, all these really flamboyant, fun costumes it was super fun for me. I love that. I've actually never performed on stage. I, I've never done theater. I got uh-huh. like my big break on TV at 21 yeah. and just like won the freaking TV lottery. So most like all of my acting education comes from being on a TV set and like camera uh-huh. work. Um, but I like the idea of theater terrifies me. And earlier you mentioned about just how like, like certain sense um, like senses, like whether it be lights or noises or or even just like spatial awareness, I would imagine like th- that, that, like how does that look for you if you're on a set or on a stage? Because yeah. for me, like my, it's funny, like I would have my own things. Like I would be terrified. I would be so paralyzed by fear that I would make a mistake and then just not be able to perform the rest of the mm-hmm. show if I did theater. And then funny enough for me when I'm on a TV set or a film, if I have to do a very emotional scene, I get very uncomfortable having to like cry in front of people when it is like this performative expectation of me because I don't want to let people down and I have to put my headphones in and I don't really want people to talk to me and Mm -hmm. I need to kind of go away in my own world. And so it's just, I'm, I'm thinking of all these things while you're, while you're, while it's ruminating still this idea of like, professional liability when so often I have found myself on sets and the things that an actor needs are really like specific to a sense memory and really like unique to the situation. And it's not unheard of for actors to ask for everyone to be quiet or to have to go off in a corner or have specific requests for lights and sounds. And, and so does that make sense? Like, have you thought about that a lot? Like, has that, have you seen, like, I'm just, it's just so wild to me to think that like as an autistic person to be like a liability to a production when I've been within so many productions where someone who is non-autistic has so many specific requests and needs that need to be worked around for them to get their performance. It's so funny how 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 we all need different accommodations Mm -hmm. throughout our day. Um, You know there are so many accommodations that a person might need or request or that an actor if they're if they're big enough to get things written into their contracts, you know, so many different accommodations an actor might request to be included in their contract. But as soon as that actor has a disability and we use the word accommodation or an actor requests accommodation because they are disabled, all of a sudden we get really scared and back off and feel really uncomfortable. And I think it's sometimes because we just in general feel so uncomfortable around the idea of disability. We feel really uncomfortable talking about disability. You know, how often will we say, I'll I'll jump through all sorts of hoops using all sorts of euphemisms to even avoid saying the word disabled because it can sometimes make us feel uncomfortable saying things like special needs or differently abled or disabled with the abled all cap. You know, we will, we really Mm -hmm. have a discomfort around disability as a country, which means that as soon as a disabled person asks for an accommodation, we back away and get scared. But what I'll say about the theater part that you were asking about is that I, I think theater is actually so easy. The easiest part of my job, the hard part of my job is, you know, living in a hotel room in a different city than I'm used to being in or figuring out how to go grocery shopping on my one, you know, if we're working six days a week and Mondays are one day off, figuring out how to get enough groceries on that one day to last a week or how all these executive function things, that's what's hard for me. But on stage, you know, we've rehearsed it all before and everything happens in exactly the same way every night, pretty much. All the light cues are called at the same moment and the same time. All the sound cues happen at exactly the same place and exactly the same time every night. And even in terms of that, you know, emotional memory or having to all of a sudden do an emotional scene, like you were saying, to me, that would be really scary on film because you're recording everything out of order and you're doing so much just sitting around waiting, sitting around waiting for the for the moment that they call go and then you need to go. That would be really hard for me to have to just jump into jump into some big emotional moment out of nowhere 
when I've just been like sitting in a little trailer for two hours doing nothing, you know, mm-hmm. but in theater, it almost to me feels like you're going on a bus ride. You're going on this bus ride or a roller coaster ride. My only job is to get on the bus at the first stop at, on the first, at the first scene of the play, especially for, this is easier for big roles like Christopher Boone or Amadeus, where you get to where you get the luxury of being on stage for the whole show. As long as you hop on the train at the first stop and then listen to your other actors and really genuinely just stay open and stay listening. I actually don't have to do that much work. I just have to be open and be listening. And the show is going to take me on that journey every night. You know, I'm going to go through all the ups and downs. I'm going to experience the whole journey that whole roller coaster ride every night. And the only hard part is just making sure that you're really invested and on and you're on the train for that first that first scene and that you're really open and listening to all your other actors. And after you do that, if you can do that, you, you just get to ride the ride and experience the journey with the audience, which is pretty, pretty special and a pretty big luxury and makes my job pretty easy sometimes. You've talked about how as an autistic person walking through the world that you've, you have scripts for daily parts of your life that make those kind of day-to-day interactions at coffee shops or grocery stores or on the street much more manageable and that how that has prepared you for acting in a way that, that, that they're, the parallels between that is really comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you talked about that with other autistic actors that you know? I have. Yeah. And not even as much with other autistic actors as just other autistic people. I'm so lucky now that I get to be a public speaker and go to all these different cities, just talking to and meeting educators and students and other autistic people. And they all say that that resonates so much for them. So as an example for your listeners, you know, if I go to a coffee shop, I might say to the barista, hey, can I please have a medium coffee? Thank you so much. And then if it seems like more conversation is needed, I can say, oh, has it been busy today? Then regardless of what the barista says, right? The barista can say, yes, it's been busy or no, it's been slow. And I can say, oh, do you like it better when it's busy or when it's slow, right? So always stick to the script. It makes things so much easier. But yeah, I think it is so interesting. You know, we really all just need to start embracing each other's differences because, right, your your listeners might not be autistic like me or might not even know anyone who is autistic like me, but their differences are their strengths too, right? And if I hadn't been an autistic person who had used scripting my whole life just to try to get by and act as a non-autistic person, if I hadn't been an autistic person who needed to get really good at performing in front of people, street performing out on the street as a single dad because no one else would hire me, I might have never gotten to be an actor, right? And so all of my differences really helped me become who I am, even though those differences are things I might have seen initially as weaknesses, or I might have seen those weaknesses, those differences as things about myself that were bad or shameful. My differences all ended up being my strengths. And I think that's really true for every single person listening. It's scary, right? I think we all want so badly to fit in that we really forget about the things that make us stand out. But I think if we can be brave enough to embrace all of ourselves, if we can be brave enough to give all of ourselves to society, we'll end up giving like all of society and ourselves such a huge gift by doing that. It's interesting the things, like the shift between for me personally would be like in my 20s, it was very much like, no, I need to, I need to be what everyone is expected. I need to be what is expected of me. What can I be that is expected of me from my peers, from loved ones? Like what? And then now in my 30s, I feel like I've just spent so much minimizing the parts of myself that were maybe messy or emotional or heightened or that were considered uh, by some people too much, like to be too much and take up too much space in the world. And really just trying to embrace that more and just be like, no, I, I, I have to love, I want to love my mess and I want to take up space and maybe I'm just a loud person and maybe I am emotional and maybe I, the pendulum swing of being excited for something is like being so overly excited for something. Maybe that's okay. And I don't have to minimize that to make someone else more comfortable. 
Absolutely. And it's just, it's being human, right? Yeah. We all get to experience being human. Uh, I, yes, I totally agree 100%. Um, I know that we've been chatting forever. I could talk to you all day. Um, but I do want to take just a few minutes because on your social media, you talk so lovingly about being a father and also posted a lot of videos about saying like, as an autistic, I, autistic fathers are amazing. Um, and just really showcasing like your experience as a dad and, you know, sharing that you have an autistic son. You also have a trans daughter. Like, what do you feel? One, why did you feel... Am, th- what made you feel the need to even say, as an autistic teenager? No, it's okay. But I think someone's joining us, if that's Come okay, in, while we're on course, the subject. Always. I think they were listening and maybe heard. Come on in. <laughs> but just as for you to say, autistic fathers are amazing fathers, like what even compelled you to want to say that or feel the need to say that? Yeah, I think we often don't necessarily think of people with disabilities as being parents so often, you know, at my kid's school district, for instance, there's a, it's called the um, special education PTA group or something like that. And there's all this talk about people with disabilities being students or people with disabilities being kids, or someone might say, I have a, I have a special needs child, but we don't actually think about what happens to those kids once they turn 18. We don't think about them growing up and being adults or becoming parents. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's so important to realize. And even so for a lot of a lot of time in our country, it was actually legal for for institutions to sterilize people with disabilities because they thought it would it was sort of eugenics, you know, throwback mm-hmm. to eugenics. But even nowadays, a lot of parents will sterilize their young people with disabilities. And, and, I'm, and you know, I'm sure they're doing it with best, their kids' best interest in mind and they're loving their kids and thinking that that's the best choice for their family, for them to have their child with a disability sterilized. But I think so being a parent with a disability is in some ways an act of rebellion. <laughs> and, and I also think it's so important to show, we were talking earlier about proprioception and how autistic people love swinging back and forth or jumping around or bouncing. And it's so great because when my kids want to be wrestling on the floor or rolling around, I can get down on the floor and roll around with them. Not because I feel like, oh, I better do this to be a parent, but because I actually genuinely want to and genuinely find it fun with them. Or if my kids are jumping on the trampoline, right? I genuinely find it fun to go jump on the trampoline with them and do all these things with them. When my kids are not feeling understood, when maybe my kids feel like they're a little bit different or my kids feel like they're they're not being understood or accepted, I know how that feels like because I feel that way every day. So I think I can relate to them in that way. So in all of those ways, I think I'm a better parent because of and not in spite of my autism. For any parents listening right now, um, if you could give them some perspective or advice or just uh, some words on being advocates for their children if they have an autistic child or a trans child, is there anything you'd want to share with them? You know, I think so often when we are needing to advocate for ourselves or for our children, we can feel like we are being really selfish by doing that advocacy work for our community, or we can feel like we're being a burden when we advocate for our communities. But I like to remind people that, you know, when you're advocating for your community, when you're advocating for yourself, you're actually being the opposite of selfish. You're being the opposite of a burden and you are actually helping everyone. You're probably even helping the person who's giving you pushback on your advocacy. So I can give some examples really quickly from the disability community, just because that's my community and that's my lived experience. But I promise this works no matter who you are advocating for, or, or how you're advocating. But deaf and hard of hearing people needed to advocate for things like captions to be put on apps like TikTok or Instagram or YouTube or, or even on Netflix so that they could access those apps. They, they need the, the captions to be able to access those apps at all. But that actually makes my life easier as someone who's not deaf or hard of hearing because I can then be in the waiting room at the dentist's office or I can be on the bus, 
or maybe I'm in a class that's getting really boring and dragging on. I can pull out my phone and watch TikTok videos without my teacher knowing, you know? Um, so that those captions help me and make my life easier. As so many people in our country are getting older, right? And boomers are getting older. They can be, they might not identify as being disabled, but they can be watching Netflix with the captions on and it makes their lives easier. They don't need to always be leaning over to their spouse saying, what did he say? What did, what did he just say? You know? Um, or the other, another example I'll give is curb cuts. People with mobility disabilities needed to advocate for those curb cuts to be put in sidewalks so that they could use those sidewalks so they could get up onto the sidewalks with their wheelchairs or mobility devices. But that actually made my life easier as a dad, as a parent with four kids now in a blended family who might be pushing all four of those kids around in the stroller, right? I don't need to wrestle that stroller up onto the sidewalk anymore because of those curb cuts. That advocacy made my life easier. Or even when I'm going through the airport with my rolling luggage and I'm going to a speaking gig, I feel like I'm in the airport every week now going to a different speaking event. And I, I might, I'll see the stairs and I'll see the ramp, right? I'm going to take the ramp with my rolling luggage because that advocacy that people with mobility disabilities needed to do made my life easier. So just, re- Ooh, don't push that button, August, thanks. Just remember that when you are advocating for your, your children, for yourself, for your community, no matter, how, no matter how people try to make you feel, you are not being selfish. You are not being a burden that you are actually helping everyone and making everyone's life easier. Mickey, I just love so much that, you know, you, you started, we started the conversation kind of speaking on how you were a young child. You didn't have a lot of friends at school. You were, uh, you were nonverbal. And then here you are in adulthood, um, not only, you know, but going on stage, but also visiting schools so that so that so many children can um, have the wonderful opportunity of meeting you, but also, you know, make friends with parts of themselves that might not even know is there and have an understanding on who they are. And also even beyond even if autism, but just, um, you know, that the world is a big, beautiful place and really just embracing the, the big, beautiful parts of ourselves, even if it's not like the stereotypical idea of what society is deemed as normal and like really throwing normal out the window and just being ourselves. And that's where all like the wonderful magic happens. I agree. And I this I'm it, I've been so excited to sit with you and to talk about acting a bit. And I I'm very glad that you're on stage and you're touring and have all these incredible speaking um, gigs and and getting to, and like at so many conventions and supporting so many wonderful wonderful um, communities and of like art, arts for autism. But also I'm very excited to get you back on stage at some point. I know we've all been living in the upside down, and I feel like we're starting to get a little bit more right side up. And I cannot wait to see you back on stage um, one day. I'm definitely putting that out into the universe. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It has been such a huge, huge honor to be on the show with you. Thank you. And is this August, you said? It is. Do you want to say hello or goodbye? Hello. Hi. Hello, August. <laughs> what are you going to do next after this podcast? You're going to go ride your bike? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. That sounds like a beautiful day. Well, Mickey, thank you so much. This has been a Super Bloom podcast hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa D. Mons and Diamond and Print Productions and advertisement partnerships with ACAST. <laughs>